Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And today we're going to open up a brand new series through the book of Psalms. We're going to start with uh, the first book in Psalms, and that is uh, that comprises Psalm 1, 1 through 41. And we're going to see how that goes and uh, go from there. Um, there's five books in the, the book of Psalms, if you're not aware of that. But uh, today, uh, the title of our study is The Fast Lane or the Right Path, and we're going to look at uh, Psalm 1. Would you please join me now in prayer? Father, we have a great text uh, today to look at in your word And Father, I I pray that you would open our eyes to see, um, see the truth in the text, to know what what way we are to go, the way, the righteous way, the righteous path, the path that you have ordered for our steps to walk in, to enjoy, to find delight in you and because of you. And so, Lord, I pray as we open this this great book of Psalms to consider what it has to say to us, Lord, that you would teach us, that you would teach us to delight in you, that you are our you are our delight. You are the only one who can satisfy the longing of our hearts. And so I pray that as we consider this, this great text, that our hearts would be, because of Christ, would be settled. Uh, in, in, in delights and, and find our rest, find our satisfaction, find our hope only in and because of all that you have accomplished and done in your death and resurrection. So we thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have because of Christ. And we pray that you would use this time to open eyes and ears to this great hope that we might know of, of the greatness of Christ in Jesus' name. I pray, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 1. We're going to look at the entire psalm today, Psalm 1. Hear what the word of the Lord has to say to us today. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Well, the first psalm is among the best known of the psalms in the entire Psalter. And rightly so, it stands as a gateway to the rest of the psalms. To use another image, it is a text 
of which the remaining psalms are an exposition of. Psalm 1 is a practical psalm. It it leads a collection, and so we're we're taught at, at once that the study of the Psalter must have practical effects if the Psalms are to achieve the purpose for which God gave them to us. Psalm 1 introduces us to the way to find true happiness and fulfillment in life. It is by meditation on and delight in the law of God. But the psalm also warns of the sure, eventual, and eternal ruin if we will not find happiness and enjoyment in the Lord. Psalm 1 introduces us to the doctrine of the two ways, which it's a very common uh, concept. Most Americans are acquainted with Robert Frost's use of the idea in the poem, The Road Not Taken, when he says, Two roads diverged in a road, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Those who know literature a bit more thoroughly are aware of the idea of the past diverging in a wood is also found in Dante Algarias, the Florentine poet of the Middle Ages, whose divine comedy begins midway this way of life were bound upon, I woke to find myself in a dark wood, where the right road was lost and gone. But there are, uh, there are biblical examples of this doctrine of the two ways. The most important of them is recorded towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount by the Lord Jesus. The last section of the sermon lists a series of contrasts between which choices must be made, two gates and two roads, Two trees and their type of fruits, two houses and their two foundations. The 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 part regarding the two ways says in Matthew seven, thirteen through fourteen, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Psalm 1 is the clearest. It's the most carefully developed. It's the first full expression of this idea of the doctrine of the two ways in Scripture. The Psalms have a variety of classification of types of genres, about seven of them, and one of them is wisdom. Wisdom Psalm, which is what this is, it portrays the way that the wise man chooses. But Psalm 1, we need to understand, is more than just this is the father of all the wisdom psalms. Jerome, the translator of the Latin Vulgate, called Psalm 1 the preface of the Holy Spirit to the Psalter. The great Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon also called Psalm 1 a preface psalm. He said this, It is the psalmist's desire to teach us the way to blessedness and to warn us of the sure destruction of sinners. This then is the matter of the first psalm, which may be looked upon in some respects as a text upon which the whole of the psalms makes up the whole divine sermon. The very first verse in Psalm 1, and therefore also the very first verse of the Psalter, it begins with the word blessed. And this is an important word. It's an important way of saying that the psalms, as well as all of scripture has been given for our good. Blessed means supremely happy or fulfilled. In fact, the Hebrew, in the Hebrew, the word is actually a plural. It denotes either a multiplicity of blessings or an intensification of them. And so this verse might be correctly translated, oh, the blessedness of the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. 
And at first, it might surprise us about this idea of blessedness, of of the happy man, is followed immediately by the description of the wicked man, particularly since such a description of the way of the wicked also appears in verses 4 and 5. But it's actually an excellent device used here. By starting in the way, this way, the poet achieves three things. First, he begins where we are at. He begins where we are at. None of us begins, uh, starts out being righteous. We start out being sinners. And if we do not eventually enter by the straight gate through the narrow road that leads to life, it is by God's grace alone. No one, either in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, was saved any other way. Second, the poet is able to introduce the doctrine of the two ways from the start. We we do not have to wait till verse 4 to find out that there is a way other than the way of the godly. And third, and finally, the author says something important about godliness. He is going to present godliness positively as the way of the one who delights in the law of the Lord. But any positive affirmation to have meaning must have a negative to go with it. And In order to say what the way of the godly man is, we must also say what the godly man is not. And that is what the first verse of the psalm accomplishes for us. How how beautiful it is. The most striking feature of Hebrew poetry is what is known as parallelism. That is saying the same thing or a variety of the same thing into linked lines. That is what we have here. Only in this verse, there are three linked lines and there are three parallel terms. Each set, set one, walk, stand, sit. Set two, counsel, weigh, seat. And set three, wicked sinners, mockers. And because of this common feature of Hebrew poetry, a number of writers are reluctant to see any special progression of these terms. But it's hard to believe that the phrases are not saying that the way of wickedness is downhill and that sinners always go from bad to worse. Spurgeon thought so. He said, when men are living in sin, they go from bad to worse. At first, they merely walk in the counsel of the careless, the ungodly. They forget who God is. The evil is rather practical than habitual. But after that, they become habituated to evil. They stand in the way of open sinners who willfully violate God's commandments, and if let alone, they go one step further. They they become themselves pestilent teachers and tempters of others, and thus they sit in the seat of the scornful. They have taken their degree in vice, and as true doctors of damnation are installed. This is the interpretation of the psalm. The psalm does not merely describe the lifestyle of the wicked. It shows the fruit of the way of life and its end. To the unsaved, the way of sinners may may seem wonderful, even exciting. It's it's an adventure. It's a dream. It's it's the journey, they think. But the psalmist warns that it's actually a fast track to emptiness, to frustration, to a life of meaningless, and even more importantly, of a judgment in the life to come. What What about the other way, the way of the righteous? We might expect, since a wicked man has been described in terms of associations, that the godly man will now be described in terms of his associations too. That is, a person who associates with the godly. But that's not what the psalmist does. Instead, he describes in verse 2, the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, on which he meditates day and night, verse 2. 
This is a very powerful expression to delight in the law of the Lord. And when we study the, the Bible, the word law is used to refer to the whole of God's inscripturated revelation. We really are learning not about human beings or nature, which is what the other disciplines teach us about God. As Lewis says, the order of the divine mind embodied in the divine law is beautiful. John Stott adds wisely that delight is an indication of the new birth, for the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And as a result of the inward regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, the godly find that they love the law of God simply because it conveys to them the will of the Lord God. They do not rebel against its exacting demands. Their whole being approves and endorses it. Delighting in it, the godly will meditate on it. They will pour over it constantly, day and night. The contrast between the two ways may be put like this. It's the, it's the difference between those who are in love with sin and those who are in love with God. The first class loves sin's ways. They, they follow it. They love God. The second, they'll love God and they seek him in scripture where he alone may be found. God's blessing is for those whose heart loves his word. If your heart is in, engaged, your head will be engaged too. Verse 2 says, on his law... He meditates day and night. And the word meditate, it means to murmur or to mutter. This has a sense of talking to yourself, speaking under your breath as you ponder God's word. This is also an imperfect verb. It suggests this is an ongoing action. We ponder God's word day and night, like a program running constantly in the, in the background on a computer. So the word of God releases its flavor as we chew on it again and again and again and again. But you might wonder, how can we meditate on God's Word? The foundation is to spend time in God's Word, reading it, studying it, meditating on it. We, we meditate on the Word of God uh, just by reading, reading it and, and reading it again and thinking about what does this mean? What is, it, what is it really saying? And we understand something of the context as well. The foundation for meditation is spending time in God's word. You cannot be deeply influenced by something that you don't know. And of course, there's no substitute for memorizing God's word. The goal of meditating on God's word is to look at it long enough so that we can see its beauty and our hearts catch fire. Pondering the Psalms will wake our hearts to find joy in Christ. Our goal is not to master the Psalms, but to be mastered by them. You know, today we are seeing this entire move, movement, if you will, towards new age thinking. Well, it doesn't really matter what you think about. Just, just meditate on something. Meditate on an object. Meditate on an idea. Or, or don't. Just don't fill your mind with anything. But this isn't biblical meditation. Biblical meditation has an objective standard and an objective revelation, meaning very clearly that we are to meditate on the word because it reveals the, the good and the just and the holy and the perfect character of God. Those who suggest that meditation is something other than this, they, they are not really meditating You're just emptying your mind 
to quote-unquote relax. But biblical meditation involves both the mind and the heart meditating on the revelation that God has given us. And understanding that revelation, chewing on it, digesting it, putting it into practice. Biblical meditation is fuel for our lives. It helps us to uh, to to be able in the, in the midst of of challenges, in the midst of our our ideas, in the midst of the challenges of life, and a twenty four seven news cycle that is aiming to teach you, to instruct you. Um, and the way of the scoffer, biblical meditation helps you to stay steady your hearts, steady your mind on the word of God. And you know what? What we what we treasure, this is where Jesus talks about so much about what we treasure matters because what we treasure reveals the condition of our hearts. As Christians, we should be concerned about our hearts. Proverbs 4.23 tells us that we are to guard our hearts with all due diligence for out of it flows the issues of life. Biblical meditation helps us. It helps to fill our hearts and our minds with the truth of the psalmist so that we'll be wise. We'll grow in the wisdom of God. We'll grow in the understanding of his word. We'll grow in in skill in applying it again and again to our hearts. I I mentioned that the, the psalmist with the word meditate, it means here to murmur, to mutter to ourselves. It's having a conversation with yourself, reminding yourself again and again and again and again, uh, like like a record player, like your favorite song. Remind yourself on repeat the truth of Scripture. This is what meditation does. Or, or think of meditation and memorization like putting your ATM card in into the thing and you type in the pin. Well, you have to have your pin memorized, otherwise you're not going to get any money back. And in this way, we meditate and we memorize on the Bible so that so that whether in good times and bad times or in every season of life, no matter what it is, we can pull out the scripture. We can utilize it. We can access it. And we can then apply it to our lives. And in this way, we're meditating on it day and night, whether... Whether you have it posted, um, you know, on your monitor at work or at home or, uh, you know, in the bathroom, on the mirror or wherever you go. Whether you put it in your pocket of some verses that you're meditating and memorizing on or, or you, you have it on your phone with your smartphone with uh, the ESV uh, Bible app. Take time not just to read the Bible not just to even study the Bible. Take time to meditate on the Bible. Take time to digest the Bible, to chew it, to to meditate on it, to consider all that it has uh, to say to you personally. Well, we've talked a lot about that, but you know, when 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 most people think about this, uh, when most people think of the results of being upright or godly living, they think immediately, what am I going to get out of it? What are the rewards? That is, they think if they do what God tells them to do, he's going to reward them. He's going to be happy with with them. But if they they do not, they'll be punished. Well, there's an element of truth in this. It is 
what is involved in the doctrine of the final judgment. But what the psalmist actually says here is quite different about this. He's talking about blessedness, the blessedness of the man who does not stand in the way of sinners, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. His point is, is that this is not a reward. It's rather the result of a particular type of life. And so the poet uses two images to show the results of these two ways. The first is a fruitful tree. It describes a man whose delight is in the law of the Lord and draws his spiritual nourishment from it as a tree that draws its nourishment from an abundantly flowing stream. The land about might be quite dry and barren. The winds might be white hot, but if, if the tree is planted by the stream so that it can sink its roots down and draw nourishment, it will prosper, it will yield fruit. This is the godly man. He, our text says he is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Years ago, a couple had gone to China as missionaries, used this image to describe their life after the communists had taken over China at the end of the Second World War. Their name was Matthews, and they were the last missionaries of the China Inland Mission to escape from that country. They, they were under communism for two years, during which time they lived with their young daughter, Lila, in a small room. Their, their only furniture was a stool. They, they could not contact their Christian friends for fear of getting them in trouble. Except for the smallest trickle, their funds were cut off by the government. Heat came from a small stove, which they lit once a day to boil rice for dinner. The only fuel they had was dried animal refuse that Art Matthews collected from the streets. These were indeed very dry times for them. But afterwards, when they wrote their testimony to God's grace in the midst of such challenges, they called their book Green Leaves and Drought Time. Because they found that those who delight in the word of God do not wither, but instead produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And the second illustration the psalmist uses here is chaff, to which he compares the wicked. The picture here is of a threshing floor at the, the time of a grain harvest. The, the threshing floors of Palestine are on hills that catch the best breezes. Grain is brought to them. It's crushed by animals or by threshing instruments that are drawn over it and then pinch high into the air where the wind blows the chaff away. The, the heavier grain falls back to the threshing floor. It's collected, and the chaff is scattered or burned, and it's what the psalmist says, those who live wickedly are like. The wicked are like chaff in two senses. Chaff is worthless. The chaff is burned. This, this pictures the, the futile, the empty, worthless life of the godless, as well as their judgment. We need to understand that, that the wicked do not see this. Those who are not saved do not see this. We wish they would see this, but they cannot because they will not listen to God. They will not listen to his word. And the world is shouting to them the exact opposite of the Bible's teaching. The world says that, that religion is foolishness. Religious people will never have any fun or accomplish anything, the wicked say. If you want to mount to something, if you want to have a journey, if you want to be happy in life, don't follow the Bible's teaching. Do whatever you want. Pursue happiness. Pursue your journey. Pursue your own thinking. This is what the world teaches, but this is a lie. And Paul dissects this in Romans 1. 
If you want to see where our world is headed and where it is now, read Romans 1 and study it. In Eden, the devil told Eve that if she disobeyed God by eating of the forbidden tree, her eyes would be opened and she would be like God, knowing good and evil in Genesis 3.5. But she did not become like God. She became like Satan. Her eyes were not open. They, they have been open. And now she and her husband became blind to spiritual reality. Do not believe the devil's lie. Do not follow the world when it tries to draw you from righteous living by believing falsehoods. Today we are living in a 24-7 news cycle. And this culture of ours is trying, aiming to disciple us to believe its lies. Even, even the news is, is slanted a little bit towards a certain perspective, depending on the channel that you're that you're watching. For for some, it's slanted to the political left. For others, it's slanted to the political right. You you can't get hardly any news that is straight down the middle. It'll tell you just the facts, just the facts, ma'am, right? We live in a world that wants to have it a little bit this way, a little bit that way. What God wants us to do is to have it cut straight down the line. That's what preaching is to do. We are to cut it straight. We are, we are to preach the truth. We are to speak the truth in love. We're not to believe the devil's lies. The devil is a master liar. He is a deceiver, right? He wants us to believe the lies. He is crafty. He is cunning. And this is why we must know the Bible. Jesus as he engages Satan right in the desert in that temptation, what does he do? He quotes scripture. He quotes the scripture. And he shows the authority of the word of God that he places on scripture. There are those today who even suggest that, you know what? It doesn't matter. All that matters are the words of Jesus. What about the rest of scripture? Well, Jesus showed in Luke 24, when he, when they only had the Old Testament at this time. In, the, in John 5, 39, it says, You search the scriptures because they testify of me. He's speaking of the Old Testament. He quotes again and again from the Old Testament. He utilizes it in his teaching. His teaching is full of it. In, in Luke 24, 27, it, it says that Jesus interpreted the scriptures to them. Earlier in that same passage, they're kept from understanding the truth for a time so that Jesus could teach them. And then in verse 31 of Luke 24, their eyes are opened. And in verse 45, to the truth. And those same disciples, they go out and they become witnesses for Christ. We must be taught the truth. Romans 10, 17 tells us that faith comes by hearing hearing by the word of Christ. The word of Christ is the gospel. It's the death. It's the burial. It's the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He is also coming soon. We must test all things, be like the Bereans in Acts 17, 11, to search the scriptures, to see if these things are so, and then to be, if they are so, we must be like the Thessalonians who received the word with gladness and joy. And that is why we must take in the word of God, not only 
personally reading and studying and meditating and memorizing and applying the truth of Scripture to our lives, availing ourselves on the means of grace that God has given us. But we must avail ourselves of the corporate preaching of God's Word. It's not enough just to take in a podcast sermon. I am not your pastor. I am not your preacher. I am trying to help God's people to get more into God's Word and to study it and and to dive into it and to provide additional resources to help you to serve other people in your various contexts. And I'm so thankful that so many of you find these helpful, but I'm not your pastor. I'm not your pastor. Even, Even when I do pulpit supply, I'm not, I'm not that congregation's pastor. That's an important thing to say today. We are living in a time of great confusion. And I want to be clear with you. I want to be truthful with you. My, my goal is to help you to dive more and more into God's word so that you'll delight in it, so that you'll treasure it, so that you'll see this God He delights over his word. It's the way to find happiness. You know, I'm reminded here, as I before I recorded of of Ecclesiastes 3, vanity is vanity and grasping for the wind. This is this is what the wicked are after. They're, They're after they're after everything. They're after whatever they can get and for however long they can get it. Even Tom Brady recognized the vanity of life. Recognizing that he was, even though he's won six NFL championships, he's at the pinnacle, he's considered the GOAT, the best quarterback in NFL history. He recognized, like Solomon did, that it's really vanity. He's missing something. He's missing the goal, the point of life, which is to find happiness and satisfaction in God. And the only way to do that is to know the God who has revealed himself in the word of God. That is why that is why we God has revealed himself so that we might know who he is. We might know what he is like. He has chosen to reveal himself. And his entire his entire word From Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between, it reveals Christ. The only way to not succumb to the devil's lies is to get yourself in the word of the Lord. Every day, every chance you get, you are confronted with a culture that is not improving. And we have an authoritative word that can anchor us, and we have a Savior and a Lord and Jesus who is the anchor to our souls. Well, verse 6 of Psalm 1, it's a fitting end to the psalm, and it's a proper thematic statement for which to proceed on in this uh, Psalter. It distinguishes between the final end of the righteous and the final end of the wicked, saying, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the the, the way of the wicked will perish. This verse describes the destiny of two people. King Solomon, or yeah, King Solomon wrote in Proverbs 14, 20, there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. 
This is the way of wicked. It's, it's death. The way of the righteous is the way of the Lord Jesus, who described himself in John 14, 6, as the way and the truth and the life, and promised to keep those who follow him. Now, we don't want to read too much into the, into the Psalms by way of prophecy. There is some prophecy. I don't want to suggest that the author of this psalm, whoever he may have been, was looking forward to the coming of Christ and wrote it. When he wrote it, he wasn't. But it is hard not to notice, as Arnaud Gabelin, an excellent devotion writer of the Psalms, has said that the perfect man portrayed in the opening verses is the Lord Jesus. He's the only one who is perfect. Harry Ironside, the Bible teacher, told of a visit to Palestine years ago by a man named Joseph Flax. He had an opportunity to address a gathering of Jews and Arabs and took for the subject of his address the first psalm. He read it, and then he asked the question, Who is this blessed man of whom the psalmist speaks? This man never walked in the counsel of the wicked or stood in the way of sinners or sat in the seat of scoffers. He was an absolute sinless man. Nobody spoke to that. So Flax said, Was he our great father Abraham? One old man said, No, it cannot be Abraham. He denied his wife and told a lie about her. Well, how about the lawgiver Moses? No, someone said, it cannot be Moses. He killed a man, and he lost his temper by the rotters of Meribah. Flax suggested David. It was not David, though. There was a long silence. And then an elderly Jew arose and said, My brothers, I have a little book here. It's called the New Testament. I have been reading it, and if I could believe this book, if I, if I could be sure that it's true... I would say that the man of the first Psalms was Jesus of Nazareth. What an amazing thing that this elderly Jew said. Because Jesus is that man. Jesus is the only perfect, sinless man. He is the only Savior for to, that can save sinners. And it is he who stands at the portal of this book. He shows us but the way of the righteous life is all about it. And he not, only, he not only shows us this way to go, but he enables us, he helps us to, to go in this way. All of Scripture points to Christ. The way of the righteous is only possible because we have one who has made satisfaction with God. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And because Christ is righteous, because he paid the penalty for us in our place and for our sin, and he was buried and he rose again on the third day, you and I can be made right with God. We can have our sins, the wrath of God can be removed from us. Removed not, not, just, not just from us, but removed from the sight of God because of the blood of Christ alone. And I'm reminded again of the, of the story of the road to Emmaus, these disciples, right? Their eyes were kept from understanding so that Jesus could teach them in Luke 24. And he teaches them, he explains to them how Christ is at the very center of, of the Bible. He is, he is the promised one who will come to pay the penalty and has come to pay the penalty for them, to be buried, to rise again in fulfillment 
the teaching of the law and the prophets. And even here we're reminded that it's because Christ has come, because Christ has bled, because Christ has been buried, because Christ has rose. We have new life. And as Calvin said, we have new, a new way to see. We can put on, we can put on the glasses of Scripture and we can, we can see with the help of the Holy Spirit. We can see life through the lens of Scripture. And this is what God does. He gives us a new heart. He removes our heart of stone and he replaces it with a new heart, with new desires and, and, and new ways of thinking. He replaces, we're, we're to put off the old man, Colossians 3, and to put on the new man. We're Romans 6 and 8, we're to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to put on Christ in all of life. That's mortification. Because we have the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. See, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He, and the Holy Spirit aims to convict us. But he not only convicts us, he aims to comfort us. He aims to show and to unveil the, the righteousness of Christ over all of life in all of Scripture so that we might see and, and walk in a righteous, we, we might grow in and start to see life through the prism of Scripture. And this is why the psalmist describes the man who's blessed. Because that's what meditation does. It, it helps us not only to, to see, to know more of Christ in the Scriptures, but it also produces something. It helps us, our thinking, to be renewed as Romans 12, 1 through 2 tells us, so that we can see the world through the lens of Scripture. See, the Scripture not only provides what I'm saying, the foundation for our worldview. It teaches us about sin. It teaches us, us about ourselves, about man, who we are. It teaches us about who God is. It teaches us about Christ and all these things. But it's because of all these things that we can then see the world in the right way. And this is what meditation helps us to do. It helps us to mull, mull on and meditate, to tell ourselves, to mutter the truth to ourselves. To, or uh, as other people have said, it, to preach the gospel to ourselves. So that then we'll, like, like the woman at the well, like the Emmaus disciples, when their eyes are open, they go and tell. You see, we cannot help but tell other people about what we love, about what we treasure. That's why even the hardened atheist wants to tell other people about what they believe. That's why the Muslim wants to tell other people about Islam. That's why the Mormon wants to tell you about Mormonism. We cannot help as people but to tell what we love, what we treasure. But here's the thing. We have something infinitely greater as Christians to tell others about. And the more that we take in the Scripture, the more that we treasure the Scripture, 
the more we will want to tell others of Christ. Because our hearts have been so captivated, we, we cannot but help to tell other people. And you see this again at the, and again, the woman at the well, the, the Emmaus disciples, the apostles, uh, all throughout church history, people discover who Jesus is, who he really is, the biblical Jesus. And when you meet the biblical Jesus, you cannot but tell others about the grace that you found in him alone. And then go out and tell other people again and again and again of the grace of God. And that's why, that's why I just want to plead with you to get in the word of God, to find it to be your delight, to find it to be your treasure, because the more that you treasure it, the more you'll grow in the knowledge of the word of God and, and the more that you'll grow in the skill of applying it to your life so that then you can take it out and apply it to other people's lives. And they'll, they'll see Christ being formed in you. And what's so attractive about that? We're talking about people flocking the Gospels, tell us, by crowds and crowds and crowds of people. And they wanted to be around Jesus. They found him to be attractive. They found his teaching to be attractive. They found him to be attractive because he, he is fully God and fully man. Our mission as Christians is to be followers of Christ, to be learners of Christ, to be disciples of Christ. And the only way to do that is to learn from the word to read the Word, to study the Word, to meditate on the Word, to memorize the Word, to apply the Word, to grow. That's how we grow. So that we can even grow together in the local church and be witnesses to the ends of the earth for God's glory alone. So let us be captivated. Let, let, us, let us be treasure what God treasures. Let us find the, the Word to be all satisfying. Let us, let us drink from its depths. Let us mine its riches because they tell us of Christ. And as we do, we'll grow to be more like Christ, not only personally, but with other Christians so that we can go out and tell other people of the treasures that we found in God's word and of the infinite treasure that scripture tells us about in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's living and active, that it penetrates into our hearts. Lord, if, if there are way, if ways and things and lies of Satan that we are believing, I pray, Lord, that you would help us by your spirit, that you would expose the deeds of darkness and shine the light of your word and your truth by your Holy Spirit, into our hearts, into our minds, that we might know it. Help us, Lord, to not just take in the reading and study of God's Word. Help us to meditate on it. Help us to chew on it. Help us to digest it. Help us to not only just take and feed on it, but, but, to, but to really treasure it uh, as a necessity for our lives. And I pray, Lord, that, that as we do this, that, that we would grow. We will grow as, as you have designed. 
as you have called us to. And other people will find find the fragrance, as Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians, the fragrance, the aroma of Christ to be captivating. So Lord, help us to meditate rightly on your word. Let us help us to think about it, to chew on it, to meditate on your word and on its teaching. Again and again, to, to help us, as Paul says in Philippians 4, 6-8, to, to, to meditate on what is true and good in the Word of God. And then help us, Lord, to take it home to our hearts and to take it and to preach it, to go and tell others of the, of the greatness, of the glory, of the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.